or by scanning the barcode in the back. So let's, we're moving on to a new chapter in John today. We're going to be in John chapter 19. So John chapter 19 verses 1 through 7. Um, And for those of you that are just maybe joining us, we have been going through the trial of Jesus and um, chapter 19, it starts to get real, I guess you could say. So I'm going to read the first seven verses. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him and said, we have a law and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So Lord, I just ask you to help us uh, understand this uh, passage today, this incredibly um, Important passage, Lord, and uh, please open it up to our ears and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the many jobs of a film director is to get the actor or actress to perform their role to the best of their ability. It's not just to coach the actors through the scenes but to also provide that actor with everything they need as it relates to the background, the context, the weaknesses, the goals, everything they can possibly give them about that character. Now, sometimes to do this, the director will write a complete backstory of that character's childhood, everything. Or in some cases, the director will let the actual actor do that. Now, they put small details, things such as where the person went to school to what their favorite color is. The actor takes in all this information and then makes the character their own. Now, how they accomplish this varies, and it's based on their training and technique. And there's tons of different training techniques and things that actors and methods and so forth. But basically, some focus on research. Others watch other actors perform similar roles. But the most aggressive actors try to become their character, even by living as if they are the actual character. They take on the identity of the character. I once knew an actor who played a homeless person in a role, and he actually decided to live on the streets and in shelters both before, during, and Oh, I'm sorry, both before and during the shooting of the film and after the film. That's where I was going with that. Now, these type of actors often stay in character throughout the, the entire shooting, as I mentioned. And for instance, one actor you may recognize is Daniel Day-Lewis. 
He's known for doing these sorts of things. He had some Oscar-winning roles in My Left Foot, There Will Be Blood, and Lincoln. Now, during the shooting of Lincoln, he went so much as to stay in character, not only throughout the whole shooting, but even while he was at home, wherever he was, he never broke character throughout the whole shooting of the film. He talked like Lincoln, he acted like him, and he made all the cast and crew members refer to him as Abe. Now, regardless of their method, the best actors, I'm saying all this to say this, they desire to embody their role in order to truly represent the character that they're playing. Now, when they actually accomplish this, their performance is very compelling and very memorable. So what does all this mean? Jesus, he obviously wasn't an actor. But in his role as Christ, the Son of God, he truly and fully embodied God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man. Now, in the New Testament, the writers of the four Gospels, especially John, show us this very clearly. They they lay it out. We remember all the verses. However, in our text today, John not only shows us that Jesus is fully embodying God by getting ready to go through this trial, as he's already begun to do, but to go through the crux of this trial, the most difficult part, which will be the scourging and everything that we read and ultimately the crucifixion. But he also points to something that's very often overlooked. I think it's a very important, critical part to know what I believe this text is going to show us, not only for application today, but as a way for us to put a lens on to understand the entirety of all the scriptures. So in these first seven verses of chapter 19, Jesus' trial is actually starting now to wind down and come to a close. He's about to get convicted, judged, and found guilty and then go to the cross and be crucified as an innocent man. But how he goes, and the pain that he endures while he goes, shows us more than him just taking on our own personally deserved punishment. We've talked a lot about that already, going up and leading up to this point. What I believe John is also showing us here is that Jesus is not only embodying God, but he is enacting and embodying the true Israel of God. And that is going to be what we're going to talk about. So I'd like to dig into this passage and and see what implications, obviously, that this has for our life, especially the vocation that Christ has given each of us. So first of all, what does the word embody actually mean? The word embody means to give visible, tangible form to an idea or a feeling. To give visible, tangible form to an idea or feeling or concept. So yes, we know that Jesus does even more than that. To say Jesus embodies God is a way of saying, yes, he's fully God, but Jesus is God. God. That's the simple way to say it. But how does Jesus embody Israel? 
How does he embody not just, and I'm not talking about the geopolitical nation of Israel. I'm talking about how Israel is represented throughout all the scriptures as a people that is supposed to be set apart and used by God to be the light of the world, especially as it relates to their history, their calling, their pulling out of Egypt, their their being led throughout um, the desert, in and out of exile, God continually being faithful until ultimately Christ comes. How does he embody Israel and why is it important? Well, the first way, I'm going to give you three, three ways that I think this scripture does it so that way we can internalize this and chew on this a little bit. <clears throat> but does anything jump out at you in this passage as it relates to the things that we've talked about the last couple of weeks as it relates to the kingdom? What is Jesus's accusation? Why is he being crucified? He's being crucified because he is, uh, the Jews are saying that he said he is the king of the Jews, that he is the Messiah. And then, of course, they made up all these other accusations and lies and things like that and misquoted them and did all these things. <clears throat> but in this passage right here, we see Jesus walking through, John showing us that Jesus is actually walking through these steps of becoming king. He is enacting it out. We see the crown of thorns. We don't see a crown of gold. We see a scarlet robe. We see the accusation of him, uh, Hail, king of the Jews, the mocking. The first thing that really jumps out is the crown of thorns. We, where do we remember thorns most vividly? Genesis 3, <clears throat> after Adam and Eve had sinned against God and God had cursed the ground and cursed humanity, we read, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. <clears throat> Shows a difficulty getting into those, those fruit-bearing plants, guy, having to go and navigate through the curse every single time that you do it. What are those curse? That curse, well, I know for me, down the bottom of my driveway is like a do not enter on the right side because I have a whole bush of thorns, and these are big old thorns. And I'll tell you, every time I have to go there, um, maybe a ball flies in there or something, those thorns hurt. It remember, I, I remember, I, it makes me think about this curse. God wants us to remember the pain, <clears throat> not only that Jesus felt, but also what ultimately that curse means. Proverbs 22, 5 says, thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. Back in the Old Testament in Exodus, we see Aaron, who was the holy high priest. <clears throat> they put on his head a holy golden crown, which said, holy unto the Lord. Jesus is getting the crown of thorns, the crown, the curse, the thorns that come up and choke the word. He is getting crowned, and we've all seen it. We've seen them. In movies, I don't want to. I don't have to reiterate it. If you've seen Passion of the Christ, I think Mel Gibson did a good job of 
of portraying the context of what it was like to be uh, scourged and beaten and mocked by the Roman cohort. Remember, when Jesus, when all this stuff happened to Jesus, the Jews weren't there. Jesus was brought into this praetorium. He was brought into this area where the Jews, they didn't know this was going on. The Romans took it upon themselves to have this crown of thorn put on them. They would have, oh yeah, you're king of the Jews. No Roman was sitting there going, yes, this is the curse of the ground. Let's really show him theologically what he's doing here. Let's crown him with those thorns. But that's what they did because it was appointed by God. The scourging, again, I don't have to go into great detail. I'm not trying to get you sympathetic here for Jesus. But I do want you to know what exactly it was. I mean, the scourging was um, 39 lashes. It was 40 lashes minus one. They often took bits, uh, bits of bone, glass, metal, nails, and they wrapped them in these cords of leather, and they would stretch out the person's body over a boulder or a rock. They would lock his arms into chains, and so that way he was just this wide-open target for this flogging. And so this was a very, very um, painful experience that Jesus had went through, not just through the scourging, but through the crown of thorns as well. We see the scarlet robe, or in some translations it says purple robe. Purple was the color of royalty. It was the color of wealth and power. In Luke 19, the rich man in Jesus' parable, he was clothed in purple. If you wore that, you had money because it was a very expensive dye to purchase. It comes from something called the Tola worm. A tola worm, or in other words, a maggot known as the crimson worm, is a very amazing little creature. Christian apologist Henry Morris gives us a a neat little explanation of it. He says, when the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach herself to the trunk of a tree fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. The eggs deposited beneath her body were protected until the larva was hatched and able to enter into their own life cycle. One source noted um, um, on his article that not only does the mother give her life to protect her babies with her own body, but she also actually feeds them with it as well. Now, what about the dye? Well, as the mother dies, this crimson fluid stains her body and the surrounding wood. And from the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the dye is created. Psalm 22.6 describes such a worm and gives us this picture of Christ. Psalm 22.6, which is a messianic psalm. As we know, it starts out with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says in in verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. 
And again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a a lot of, um, what does that mean? Is this God turning his face? Is this God turning away from his son? Well, in a nutshell, you could say yes. It says in Isaiah 54, 7 to 8, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion. You see, what who God is talking about here in these Psalms is not necessarily his son when you read it in context or from a biblical theology perspective, where if when you're there, you don't have the New Testament, this was translated as to be made in talking about Israel. I am a worm and not a man. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, we see the fulfillment of these in the New Testament. This is one of those things that's a double prophecy. Double prophecy you have to be very, very careful with because you could take things and make them say whatever you want. But in this case, where you have such a vivid picture in context in the Old Testament and such a vivid picture of fulfillment in the New We know without negating or taking away from either one, making one not true. If one prophecy makes this prophecy not true anymore, that doesn't work. They both have to be there. But you see, in Isaiah 41, 14, it says, Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, meaning Israel. You men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So it's very significant here, the things that we're seeing, the imagery that we're seeing that John is showing us, the crown of thorns, the scourging, the purple robe. This is Jesus's, it's his processionary royal enthronement, but it's turned upside down. And he is doing this, as we're going to find out in a minute, very specifically to embody Israel. He is the suffering king. See, a king's job is not just to rule and be, you know, adorned with all these different things. A king's job is to protect and defend his people. A king's job is to restrain the enemies of his people. The king's job is to conquer his enemies. I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it in question 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Well, he executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And by him becoming king, him suffering here, In this way, for Israel, he is ultimately saying, you want a king? Here I am. You want protection? Here I am. You want me to defend you? This This is the defending that you need. You want me to destroy your enemies? This is the way, the way to the cross. What you've done to me by your sin, here's what I am doing for you because of my love. You see, Jesus became that curse That curse for Israel, as we just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom, O Israel. What else does it say? Not only ransom, but it refers to Israel waiting for this 
ransom. And this is what Jesus is doing. He becomes a curse. Now, how does this relate to us? And, and maybe I should have, if I had told you this in the beginning, you would have shut off. You would have shut off because, oh, I know where he's going with it. But you see, you are the true Israel. We have so many different theological um, layouts of what Israel is, who Israel is. But Paul tells us very clearly in Galatians 6, 15, 16, he says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them, upon the Israel of God. He says in Galatians 3, 28 to 29, you are Abraham's descendants if you belong to Christ. And we also see in Romans 9, not all from Israel are of Israel. You see, the true Israel of God are the true believers in Jesus Christ. The true Israel of God are the people from the very beginning, the invisible church. We don't know who it is. We, there, are, there, there are people here who may not be from the true Israel of God, but may look just like it. But God says that the true Israel of God are the ones whose spirit is of the true Israel of God. You are, you are born of the spirit. You see... Jesus was the opposite of the people of Israel. You see, the people of Israel were her, was his chosen instrument to be able to, to have a direct line to the Messiah so that the word of God and the gospel can go out to all the nations. Jesus was the opposite of Israel because the real Israel was unfaithful. The people of Israel that lived at the people of the covenant. They were unfaithful. But Jesus was the faithful one. Now we must emulate Jesus and be obviously be faithful to his word, but realize that this curse that he's becoming so that he can become king is so that you and I can be the blessing to the world with the gospel. Galatians 3:13 to 14. It says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. So we are that true Israel. Because Jesus died for us, we are now to go out and be ultimately. What Jesus was to Israel, we need to go out and be to the world. But that's just the warm-up. That's just the warm-up. The second point really brings it home. This, many of us have read through the books of the prophets. We've read Jeremiah. We've read Ezekiel. We've read Isaiah. And a lot of times we're like, what is this? What are they talking about? What's going on here? That's okay. Remember the, the Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading Isaiah 53. And he said, tell me, what is this about? And I would have loved to hear that conversation. Because Philip, 
he, I'm sure, he didn't have the New Testament. He only had the Old. He took that and he probably broke it up to him. And it says there that he showed him how that related to Jesus. You see, Jesus, number two, this is the second point. He embodies Israel by enacting the servant role of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, this is specific to the book of Isaiah. Now, the phrase, my servant, is used over 60 times in Scripture. It's used to talk about Abraham. It's used to talk about Moses, Job, David, and ultimately, and most frequently, Israel. Now, specifically in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, this phrase, my servant, referring to Israel, is used 14 times. Now, if you know anything about the book of Isaiah, it's broken up into two sections, chapters 1 to 39 and then chapters 40 to 66. Some scholars refer to it as the first book of Isaiah and the second book of Isaiah just to let them know. But the, the second half of Isaiah from, the, from chapter 40 to 66 is almost like a love letter written to God's servant, Israel. Because you see, they were in exile and they had been in exile and they thought that God had just completely rejected them, that he was never going to come back and save them. And God spends all these chapters telling them What's the matter with you? You are my firstborn son. You are my servant, Israel. Isaiah 41, 8 to 10. I can go on and on, but I'll give you two. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear I am with you. Don't anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says again in every chapter in this section, 42, Behold my servant, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. He's talking about Israel, 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 Israel. It's spoken of in the third person, the servant, And so if you and I were reading Isaiah 40s to 66, and we were reading this, we would be thinking every single time we saw this word, my servant, my servant, my servant, we would be associating this with Israel. But then we get to a really weird part of the book of Isaiah. Okay, we get to this this part from chapter, it's like 51 through chapter 53, where this servant, Jacob, Israel, becomes marred, becomes destroyed, becomes bruised. And what Jesus is doing here in this section of John and the other Gospels is he is acting out and embodying the servant of Israel, showing that he is there to take Israel's place with the beating, the scourging, the crown of thorns. He is their king, but he is taking their place and enacting out what should have been for them and what should have been for you. 
the scourging in 19.1, the slaps in the face in John 18, the spitting. Isaiah 52, 13-14, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exhausted. I'm sorry, exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. I don't know about you, but I've seen some really messed up individuals in my life and accidents and pictures and things like that. God is saying that what happened to Jesus, what happened to him, he became marred and more mangled than any other person. I can only imagine what that would have looked like. Isaiah 53, 5, it says, by his scourging, we are healed. We know that. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. That fulfills uh, the Israel. But now we know that it's ultimately talking about Christ. But the two come together. He is enacting out Israel in taking this on himself. Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. We see this, this entire act out of what Israel was supposed to, was, was supposed to happen to them. Now again, does this separate us from it? No, this is the same thing. If you believe in Christ, this applies to you as well. He did all of this because of his love for you. You see, what can we take out of this? This is one of the most difficult aspects, of, I believe, of Christianity. That God doesn't care if you're happy or not. I don't say that flippantly. I don't say that. Does he, does he want you to be unhappy necessarily? No. But happiness is not the, the, the goal. Knowing Christ is the goal. Knowing him personally, experiencing Jesus Christ in one swift punch takes care of all those emotions and happiness that you are looking for. And it will be so rich and you will, have, you will be so overflowing that even the thing that you looked at before you knew Christ that was so amazingly attractive to you becomes like dumb. That's what Paul said. I count all things as dumb, boopy, everything compared to the knowledge of Christ. And how does this happen though? You see, Christianity, Jesus is not just enacting this out just to do, like to pay our sins. Okay, I'm going to go down and pay for the sins. I'm going to become scourged and crowned with thorns and go to the cross. No, he is laying out the actual strategy and prescription of Christianity. That's hard to accept. If you're a non-believer right now, you're thinking, that's like me saying, hey, I have a full-time job for you, but I'm not going to pay you, and it's going to end up being really difficult, and you got to work 40 hours a week, and there's no benefits. You know, you, that's, what they, that's what a non-Christian would hear. But those of us that understand what Jesus did, what it requires to follow Christ, 
a denial of one's self, the killing of earthly passions, losing our life completely, giving your life over to Christ and gaining your life back tenfold because of it. What accomplishes this victory is suffering love. See, the cross is not just an example to follow. The cross must become your way of life. This doesn't mean that you walk around, you know, with like a whip, you know, whipping yourself all the time and going, I'm really, really holy now. Flagellations. That doesn't, that's not what it means. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean we go out and look for opportunities to be persecuted and to suffer and to starve ourselves and to sit up on some high mountain and just do nothing. That's not what it means. No, because remember I said victory. All of those things are suffering defeat. Suffering, accomplishing victory is realizing that the pain and, and suffering that we endure at that moment, there's Jesus with us. And that's when things get cooking. You see, at the point of pain and suffering is where Christ will reveal himself to you more than you could ever know. But we run and we hide. And he doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to embrace it. We saw tortured for Christ the other day. Now that's a very extreme example of Richard Wormbrandt and him for all of those years suffering stuff stuff that we can't like it's can't even you don't even want to talk about it it's so brutal but how did this man how did a man or how does somebody endure something like that on their own absolutely they can't but as soon as it starts to happen as soon as you enter into that realm of pain and suffering you are now in that zone you are now in a zone where Christ is going to meet you as much as, as much as you need him, he's going to be there that much more and he's going to take you through it and you are going to end up having victory and when, when the world meets that, the world changes. You see, it's an optimistic view, but it's not a view that's all about everything positive. It's the way of the cross. So we have to realize that we are the healing point of the world as Christians. We, when we meet the world, there, there ought to be an experienced healing. There ought to be a, not a physical healing of the dead rising or anything like that, but in other words, where there's pain, depression, where there's a, a mental issue, where there's physical pain, where there's people in emotional anguish, that's where the world and Christ and Christianity, when that meets, that's when it changes for the better. So as Jesus embodied Israel as the servant, we must embody Christ by dying to self. Actually, Christ must embody us when we die to self. You got to see, when we die to self, he fills us. Listen to what John 12, 20, 24 to 6 says. I'll just go to 26. Well, no, I'll read 25. He who loves his life loses it. 
And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal or life unto the age to come. But here's verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see this? We are serving Christ by losing our life. We are serving Christ by hating this system of this world. We are serving Christ by denying ourselves, And he comes in then embodies us and changes us and makes us new. Thirdly, he embodies, we see here in the text, in verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. This is another reference, obviously, to Jesus, the Son of God, but also to Israel as well. We see in Exodus 4, to 23, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. Deuteronomy 32, 18, speaking to Israelites, you neglected the capital R, Rock, who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. And we can go on and on. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark 1, 1. The holy child shall be called Son of God, Luke 1, 35. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those that hear will live. The Son of God, you see it? Jesus Christ embodying Israel, us in Christ as the true Israel. It all connects together. The Son of God means Jesus is God, yes, but this also means something else, that God himself died for you. He died for you. Now, this is a God that's all-powerful, He is beyond wisdom. He created wisdom from the beginning. He created all things. All things came through him. There's not one thing that was made that didn't become made by him. And he could have done things any other way, but this is the way he chose to do it to show us what true love is, true suffering love. But listen to this. Isaiah 53.10. This is why we got to be real careful about being overly sympathetic. Yes, we have to be able to empathize and say what Jesus went through for me. The one thing with Jesus, what Jesus went through for me should show you that there's no other way for you ever to get right with God. Because if there was, their son would never have went through this. It's almost blasphemy to say we can do good and please God when his own son had to die in the way that he did. But Isaiah 53.10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush him, Jesus Christ, his son. That means that God was pleased to die for you. God was pleased to do it. As he was going through this, as he was getting beaten, as he was getting scourged, as he was getting crucified, as we'll see next week, hopefully we'll get to that, during Christmas weekend, he was pleased to do that. 
See, God in some strange way is behind our suffering for our good and the good of the kingdom. We must embrace it so that we can meet him stronger. The more you get closer to pain and suffering, the more Christ comes closer to you, but the more this book becomes excavated, you find things and you're like, wow, I never seen that, I never saw it, but I never would have seen it, I never would have saw it if I didn't go through this. So you gotta be in the word. You gotta be in the word. That's gotta be your foundation. You gotta know Christ intimately. You gotta trust him when the trials come. Don't ask why. See, that's what we tend to do. We ask two things when bad things happen. Why? And what did I do? You could have done something dumb, dumb. You could have. Consequences. But chances are that's God's will and that's what all you need to, he wants you to know. He wants you to go through this now. Don't let what you don't know ruin what you do know about God because you don't know a lot more than what you do know. But what we do know is what he wants us to know. So we should be happy and satisfied with that. And what we do know is this Bible. We can open up his word and we can read it and expect him and know and anticipate he is going to speak to us in that time of need. We don't run and hide. That's what Adam and Eve did. Run and hide. No, we come out and we embrace. We can do that. We have the blood of Christ. So I, I want to give you a couple of challenges. Number one, I challenge you to read the book of Isaiah, especially chapters 40 through 66, because it not only shows the servant role all the way through, but it also shows the plans that God has for Israel in the future, the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. And it's just a beautiful thing to read and to, and to encourage us in our faith. <clears throat> Paul said, and secondly, we want to embrace the example of Jesus' pain and suffering as part of our transformation. Now, I'm not trying to say that this is constant. God is so gracious to us, is he not? I mean, I slept in a bed last night. I woke up this morning and had eggs. All right, I was able to get a workout in. I was able to drive here. I have a, my children are here. I, I don't have that. God says what? What did Job say? God giveth and God taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can we say that? It's hard. You can't. You need Christ to say that. Try saying that without Christ. You could never do it. You could say it the words, but Paul says, look, we need to exalt in our tribulations. Romans 5, 3 to 5. Know that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance Proven character and proven character, hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the second thing I'll challenge you to do is read the stories, all the stories of the crucifixion 
as the climax of Israel's story where God is doing everything he said he would do for them despite their disobedience in the person of Christ because of his love for them. Read that. Get that in your head. What he did for Israel. These promises fulfilled. Faithfulness. But more importantly, read the stories of the crucifixion and all of these uh, of Jesus' trial, the pain, the thorns, and all of this stuff that he took for us as the climax of your story where the God of Israel is doing everything he said and promised that he would do for you despite your disobedience in the person of Christ because you are part of that true Israel of God. One of my favorite parts of the the whole passage in Isaiah there, as God spoke encouragement through Isaiah to the exiles who felt God forgot about them. Let's take this for ourselves as we close. Isaiah 41, 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from the remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely, not possibly, surely, not maybe, I will help you and I will uphold you with my right hand, my righteous right hand. And he does all this for us by us embracing the crucified and resurrected Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises being fulfilled. Thank you for what you've done in your Son, Christ Jesus, for us, that we've, Lord, that you have uh, and not only enacted out what you've done for Israel, but, Lord, what, you, what you're doing individually for each of us. I pray that you impress this on our hearts, Lord, as we go through this Christmas season to, to understand why it was that you did come. We thank you, Father, for coming, dying, and rising again on the third day and being seated at the right hand of God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, if you don't know Christ, if this is a, maybe you're just, you're, you're teeter-tottering. Maybe you've been coming here for years. You know about him. We talked about it in Sunday school. You believe that you believe, but you don't know the Jesus Christ intimately. It's as easy as calling out to him because he promises those that ever come to him, he will never drive away. Now, if you have ongoing sin in your life, if you have sin in your life that you can't get rid of, Jesus says to you, come to me, you that are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, don't go out and clean yourself up and then come back and Jesus will be like, oh, well, it's about time. Yeah, good. No. Simply, by faith, believe on the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Acknowledge with God that that sin is wrong and confess it to him and then follow Jesus. And he promises you that he will make you a new creature. Let's stand together.